0: Don't be so stressed. Yes, you could go back to Microsoft. You'd go, you know, do these other things. You can Oracle. I had a few offers. But really do what you think will be fun and and you're passionate about. And don't worry so much that you're 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 closing all the doors. He he said he said no door is ever closed. You can always go back to it. You may have to work a little harder. He literally said if you want to go back into lower level network, you know, kernel development, you're probably going to have to read some books and convince some people that that's really what you're passionate about. But don't think that any door is ever closed. And I think just keep moving forward with that kind of attitude. And, I, and that really helped me. And I try to share that with other people who are so stressed when I see them over decisions where they're both good options. It's like, don't, don't stress that much over it. Welcome to Arda Spotlight. Live long and prosper.
1: I'm Seel Sangupta, your host and the co-founder and CEO of Arda Finance. In this podcast series, we don't just scratch the surface. We delve deep into the mindsets of some of the most successful founders, entrepreneurs, and investors out there. We dissect the pivotal choices that have set the trajectory of their extraordinary lives. We get into the nuts and bolts of how financial strategy and financial thinking can serve a purpose-driven life. So if you're looking for insights that are as intellectual as they're actionable, you're in the right place.
0: The topics covered in this podcast are conversational and for informational purposes only. This podcast is not intended to serve as investment advice and is not a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any particular security or investment. All opinions expressed by ARTA employees and third parties are not necessarily those of ARTA Finance.
1: Today, I'll be talking to Sabrina Ellis. As chief product officer of Pinterest, Sabrina is helping build and grow Pinterest and help bring everyone the inspiration to create a life they love. She's an avid bidder, and has spent a couple of decades building consumer products and creating communities at iconic companies like Pinterest, Google, and Yahoo. Prior to joining Pinterest, Sabrina was at Google, where she led the development of Google Pixel and helped define the strategy and vision for Google's smartphone. At Yahoo, she was responsible for Yahoo Mail, Messenger, Voice, and Chat. Sabrina is a highly respected product leader in the tech industry. She's known for her ability to build and scale innovative products that users love. She's also a strong advocate for diversity and inclusion, committed to making the tech industry a more welcoming place for everyone. Today, we spoke about how Sabrina navigated a number of key crossroads in her life, how she chooses what she works on, how companies and teams can become more inclusive and diverse, and her and her husband's passion for giving back to the community. It was an energizing, inspiring, and highly actionable conversation. Sabrina has been a friend, an incredible leader, and someone I've admired and learned a lot from over the years. So I'm super excited to share this conversation with you all. Welcome to Live Long and Prosper. Let's get started. Sabrina, let's talk a little bit about life and sort of key decisions or crossroads that you've been at in your life. And you know, a lot of our members really look up to leaders like you and they'd love to learn like How you went through these decisions, how you thought about it, you know, how you framed it in terms of your professional career, in your personal career, your family, you know, finances, money, all of that. So would love to hear about one of those that you think is, was a key crossroads for you.
0: You know, I would say growing up in that, in the San Francisco Bay Area, I grew up in a very highly technical family. So, you know, my dad has a PhD in electrical engineering. My mom has a master's in mathematics because they didn't have computer science then. Um, but she was a very deep technical, you know, lower level networking protocol um, engineer. And so for me, studying computer science was kind of the the easy, the default path. And when I graduated from college, it was interesting what kind of role I would might take. I had interned at Microsoft and at startups, uh, but all of a sudden I kind of wanted to branch out and do something different. And this is why I actually looked at a job that was in a software group of a consulting firm which I thought just offered a little bit more richness in terms of business and exposure. But I was also very nervous about it because as a computer science major, you're, that's not the deeply technical arena. What am I going to do? And, you know, that was definitely a point where, you know, my dad gave me some advice and looking at because I was very stressed about it. Should I do this? Should I not? He was just like, don't be so stressed. Yes, you could go back to Microsoft. You'd go, you know, do these other things. You can Oracle. I had a few offers. But really do what you think will be fun and, and you're passionate about. And don't worry so much that you're closing all the doors. He he said, he said, no door is ever closed. You can always go back to it. You may have to work a little harder. He literally said, if you want to go back into lower level networking, you know, kernel development, you're probably gonna to have to read some books and convince some people that that's really what you're passionate about. But don't think that any door is ever closed and I think just keep moving forward with that kind of attitude. And, I, and that really helped me. And I try to share that with other people who are so stressed when I see them over decisions where they're both good options. It's like, don't, don't stress that much over it.
1: That's a beautiful phrase, which is, you know, no door is ever closed. You've got to work hard, but it'll eventually open up again. As you got further in life, were there other crossroads like this, where you had to think about, you know, what big decisions to make? Like kind of going from Google to Pinterest was a pretty big change. You were so successful at Google and you were there for so long?
0: That was, I would say, um, you know, even before that, though, when I think about you, you mentioned career, life, family, I would say on the family front, people often ask me, they say, oh, you know, professional woman, could you think you can do it all? Can people do it all? And I said, you know, my answer is no, in my experience, not as an individual. And so you have to think about it as kind of the team, the family team. And I I remember when our kids, I mean, my kids now are 22 and 18. My little people have grown up. But I remember when they were six and three, uh, maybe like, you know, three and seven, that kind of range. Uh, We were kind of overwhelmed. My husband and I were feeling like we each maybe had 1.5 jobs and we had the kids and we were lucky. We have so much family around. My mom took care of them five days. I was I was very blessed to have all of that. But it was still very challenging. We didn't feel like we were kind of giving them the parenting that we wanted. So we really looked at our situation at that point. And I was uh, loving my job. I think at that point I was um, a VP at, at Yahoo and running Yahoo Mail and traveling and I traveling and managing people around the world. My husband was also a senior director at HP, managing people around the world. And we were just struggling with balancing it all. So he made the decision where I loved my job. My husband's always liked his job, but he's felt like he should probably do more for a community, for a society. So he actually quit his job and moved into education nonprofit in a role that allowed him more flexibility. He always says that when we all learned how to work from home in the COVID pit, he'd done it for a decade, right? So he, and so that, that for our family was the right decision, but it was a big decision for us to make. And so, but I think it really, it was great for us. We feel like now our kids have both, you know, moved on to college and now my daughter graduated from college, my son's in college, but we feel like it was the right decision for our family.
1: But going back to at that point of time, like how did you and, you know, your husband think about like on the family side, obviously, this was really good. But from a career point of view, and the aspirations you had for yourselves for the long term, and also very importantly, like, you know, this would meet a change in terms of the finances, the amount of money that come into the family. And so how do you think of your p as the little team that you were working on?
0: Well, so my husband and I met in business school. And you have to know that my husband, um, yeah, he goes by the philosophy that all things in life can be solved with a spreadsheet. And so I mean, anything where we're talking about, like, oh, we're overwhelmed. It's like, all right, let's make a spreadsheet and let's figure out all the things that we're doing in life and what are the things that we really want to be doing and what are the things that we don't think are as fun? How do we outsource them? That's kind of how our attitude. Same thing here. If we felt like this wasn't working... Let's build a spreadsheet. Let's look at the options and let's think about what could work. And, uh, you know, for us, it worked for us, but we we needed to actually run the numbers and make sure that it did. So, yes, a couple of couple of MBAs, we were able to actually look at that project it out. He's always, you know, he's got all these scenario analysis, things like that. I mean, look, he he also when I say Excel, he also um, at HP was in a um, strategic planning and modeling team doing a lot of supply chain analysis as well. so he's a power excel user so that helped a lot
1: <laughs> that's fantastic is this something that you do a lot like do you guys like have a spreadsheet that you maintain we've had other guests on the podcast where you know one of our guests uh, she talked about how she and her husband have this thing they call the traconator and they don't look at it often but once a year they look at the traconator and try to make sure like you know all the numbers they're also a business school couple in many ways that's so, a that all the things are right, and they're still on track, and which scenario has a higher probability of landing? Do you guys do that, or was it just a
0: one-time kind of an exercise? We've always, we've got a lot of like long-term models, things like that running. I I think at this point, look, it is true, our spending is low compared to our earning. And so at this point, my husband is also deemed, okay, here's where it's just not worth the mind share, And so you don't need to worry about those things. It's above this level that we need to look at the numbers and actually make decisions. He was also a McKinsey guy. So he's got both McKinsey and the analytics in there. And so it's like 80-20 and what actually, what are the things that you actually need to build that modeling for?
1: What were the thoughts that were going on in your mind? Did you feel like, did you feel more pressure at that point? Like, because, you know, you went from two high earning income to one and one person, like, was there, like you just had to like, you know, keep the profession going at a very high rate?
0: Uh, you know, a mix there. I would say, yes, I did feel more pressure, but there's always the understanding that our earning potential was exactly the same. That's actually a great way to put it, yeah. And so knowing that and knowing that um, I think all of these things, you know, back to even that initial thing that we we're saying, no door is ever closed, a lot of these decisions, they're for now. And that's what I tell people a lot too. It was when our kids were three, six, seven, you know, kind of age kind of three to seven. It Then when you actually, it's just for that, it's for that phase. Don't feel like these decisions are forever because I think that's where people get really overwhelmed when you think about this is forever. I've got this pressure for know that it's a short term decision that you're making the right for that time for you and that team at that point in time. But also if things go wrong or things change, what's your potential? Like, what could you do then? Understanding that either of us could actually find a reasonable job that could actually support the family.
1: Do you guys tend to, like, did you, as you went through your life and your career, did you tend to think longer term and try to plan out your career? Like, did you say, like, in five years, I'm going to do this, and that in 10 years, I'm going to be XYZ? You
0: know, people ask me that a lot, especially people who are uh, younger, earlier in their career, they're like, okay, I want to be where you are. So, what's your plan? What did you do? What do you do? Exactly. Like, what did you plan? And I was like, absolutely not. I didn't. I mean, it's it. Look, I understand that I actually had a very privileged upbringing. I was very lucky. My parents uh, were very generous with their support. So and I I recognize that now because that enabled me to operate and and make choices the way that I did. Um, I've had the freedom to actually choose in my career that things that just I'm passionate about and that would make me happy and so each time here's here's one thing that i did my career i don't know if you know this actually i until this last decision to go to pinterest i've never had a job when i took another job each time along the way i've actually quit my existing job first and then i've actually explored. i treat them as two different decisions i think there's one thing when you're looking at your current job do you love it are you super happy is this everything you want if not What would it take to be there? And you look at your, and you know what? Figure out how you get there. You got to ask for it. You got to change things, whatever it is. And I think that's where I've always stayed engaged because I I keep looking at that. And then when you get to a point where, whether it's for you or the role itself, it's just time to move on, then I say, put a fork in me, I'm done. And then I quit. And then I actually, it's a whole nother decision of what I want to do next. And it's very empowering. It's very um, surprising for the child of Chinese immigrants to make decisions this way. I think a lot of that I actually credit my husband. He's always given me the confidence uh, that to make decisions like this. Is, his answer to me is like, look, to be honest, you could find another job in like an hour. I feel very lucky to say that with all the experience I've gained. He's like, it may not be something you like. That's, a but at least know that as you're moving forward, that you have those options, you built up all these skills, you have those things. So now take those and figure out what you're passionate about. And I really love having the experience of just having that whiteboard, talking to people, learning about what they're doing, trying those things on for size. I feel like I've, I've hit you up and when I've done this probably internally at Google, because I, I've done that even internally at companies, but I, that's kind of how I've chosen what to do next.
1: But, you know, I think I thought, you know, earlier part of my answer, you were, uh, you were overly humble because you've been so incredibly successful at like building great products and building great businesses and teams. What are the core principles that you sort of led you through those things? I mean, you know, yes, we're all privileged, but at the same time, you also like really in a way, built on that base and built an incredible career. So what were the principles that guided you as you went through each of your roles and jobs? Like, how did you sort of know you were doing well? How did you motivate yourself?
0: Mm. I mean, I think there's a couple of things. There's one, when you think about the product, and I have pretty much worked in consumer products for most of my career. So, well, on that front, you know, it is, it's, It. I feel like it's very simplistic to say, but really focus on on the user of your product. For us, actually, at Pinterest, we call them pinners even. Uh, because you just got to understand what their lives are. And that I've become more humble through the years because I think if you're building consumer products, you have to, in the beginning, you're building your feature and you're like, this is so great. They must love it. They're going to want it. And it's like, no, they're very busy people. They are trying to do everything from get through school to, you know, raising their families to all of these things. What is it that I've earned the right for their mind share? That's the way I tend to think about it now. So product-wise, that's something I really think about is how are we building things that are better so that we can fit in, and we deserve to be part of people's lives. When I think about um, what the right roles are for me, and actually what I advise other people are. I think it's really important to know what your superpower is. What is it that you, if you were in that moment that your people would know you for, they describe that you're really good at. Ideally, it's something you really like doing. Most people it is. I've met a couple of people where I'm like, that's your superpower. They're like, Yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm like, okay, we gotta work. That. But almost everybody, your superpower is something that you're you shine at, you're happiest. You're so once you've identified that. I say look for roles that are really important for whatever organization and where the key to success is actually being really good at that superpower. So for me at Google, you know, a lot of it was bringing together a lot of different um I would say disparate organizations people so that they can unify under one vision and then really inspire them and exec- to get execute build something great, right? And so I'm, I'm very determined when I do things and I will kind of, there's no, I, I don't have a playbook. A lot of times people ask me, what's their playbook? I'm very adaptable. I look at the situation. I'm like, what's it going to take to get to point B that I think is the right thing for us to get to? Then I will do whatever it takes. Oh, that team needs more encouragement there. That team you know, needs more organization there. I'll just adapt because I just, that's what it needs. But that's kind of how I tend to look at things. And then and I look for situations where I might be able to contribute. What superbar are you using now at, at Pinterest? You know, walking into Pinterest, uh, there are a few different reasons I came, by the way. You know, one of the things, I love Google. And this is why. Google was the first time where I had a job when I took another job. Because I was at Google. I was in between roles, though. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. So I was kind of in, you know, wasn't fully ingrained into a role when Pinterest, the opportunity came along. I love Google loved all the people there, learned so much. But the the difference at Pinterest, and this kind of drives me to what what I'm doing, is that uh, one, the CEO, Bill, I think you know him, is is I think a very strong leader. And I felt like I could learn from him. The other is the product opportunity and the passion around it, the passion that Bill had. This is the opportunity for us to build a positive place on the internet. And not only that, it is a place where uh, right now it's predominantly women, probably, you know, two thirds, but actually uh, we're that's expanding as well um, into kind of men's fashion, things like that. They're inspired there. And eight out of 10 of them after using, they're happier after using the product. Like there's almost no other product that can say that. And I feel like if we do that, we put that out there, we promote it, we promote metrics to even measure that. I think we can really kind of change the measurement that people are thinking and that people are building their products towards, not just Pinterest. We want to build Pinterest to be top of that, but other social sites understanding that and starting to measure that and building that way. That's, that's something I want to do. To wrap
1: this up, I wanted to kind of, you know, one of the questions I love asking people who come on the podcast is what advice would you give to yourself? Like, you know, when you were say ten years back or twenty years back, um, what if you if there was a message you could send to yourself, what would that be?
0: You know, it's actually consistent with a lot of the themes that I share with others. It's it's a little bit of don't stress over it that much. Each decision that you're you're really stressing over, you're just absolutely convinced that there's somehow a right choice and a wrong choice. All a, a lot of the paths turn out okay, and sometimes things turn out in ways that you hadn't hoped for that you you wish didn't, but I think you got to let those go and just move on. I'll give you an example. I was at a startup before I joined Google. Um, it was called Cosmics. and really bright people, really enjoyed it, but also felt like uh, probably wasn't the right place for me to contribute my superpower in that I looked at the, the company and it was really about related entities and data mining. And I felt like that was the strength of the company. They'd brought me in to work on more of a consumer product. But I'm like, you know what? I don't think that's the key to this company. It's more that you need a massive data set for you to process on some of the underlying technology. So I decided to leave. Uh, when I left, I actually ended up not, I had I had like, I think, can't remember, like 60 or maybe 60 days to decide whether I wanted to exercise my options. And at that point in time, and I you run all the numbers and it's, is this company gonna be in the money um, or not? For me because at that point i had to put in six figures to actually exercise my options i decided not to, and i believe four weeks after that uh cosmics was acquired they'd never announced the overall by walmart to start walmart labs for a, a substantial amount that i definitely would have been in the money uh and you know it, it ended up that you know, it was i missed it at like Four weeks. So is that you know I was upset for a few days, but I was kind of like, you know what? I ended up at Google. I met wonderful people like you. I think I learned a ton, developed my career a lot. Things happen and you can't kind of always be so stressed about each decision and what coulda, shoulda, would have been. I think it's more important to kind of look forward where you're at, are you enjoying it? And there's those things are gonna happen. There's a lot of luck in life and you gotta let it go.
1: Sabrina, you're uh you're an incredible leader. You're also an incredible woman leader at a tech company. And it's something that, you know, we, we all care deeply about increasing the diversity of our companies and especially making it a making tech a much much nicer, more, more warm place for women to be in. What do you have to say to like younger leaders, men, women on, you know, how do we do all of that?
0: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to think about. I think first is recognize that diversity will help you build better products. And I think organizations run better. I think having those diverse perspectives, you know, it's it's one of those things where there's research that now uh, quantitatively even shows it. So I want to make sure that people understand that at its core. One thing that I have seen, and I call it I call it Sabrina's rule of three. They named it Sabrina's rule of three when I was actually sharing it at at Google, um, is that I do think that there is a minimum of three when you're looking at any underrepresented group. What I found is when you're the only one, and I have been, like when I joined, first joined the Android leadership team, I would count actually. I'd be like 27 people in the room. I'm the only woman. 30 people in the room. I'm the only woman. And it was interesting when you're looking at things like working on camera, where none of the guys even took pictures. And I was like, why are you cleaning this? You need more people. I take so many selfies, right? It's just, you know, I think I've made you take a selfie with me. Um, it's, you need the people who are really enjoying the product in different ways to share their perspectives. So what I find is that if you're the one, you're the only. And also, often you get these questions of, Sabrina, what, do, what would women think about that? Sabrina, what would Asians think about that? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know that I can represent billions of people. The funny thing is, when there are two, everybody thinks you're best friends. Oh, you and Denise? I'm on a board and where there's two. And it's like, oh, you and Denise, do you hang out all the time? I'm like, I like Denise, but we're not best friends. But there is this assumption that you're best friends and you're connected in some way. It's not until you get to a minimum of three that somehow you can actually be different, but also have enough disparity in the group. And so I encourage anyone who is running Teams, we're thinking about it. Try to create that scenario. I think someone, I actually thought about asking some of my social, my friend who's a sociology professor, I'm like, you got to run this study. Someone told me that there is research that shows this, but this has been my experience. And as I've shared it with others, there's a lot of nodding and a lot of people that feel this as well. So when you're thinking about building teams, when you're thinking about organizations, don't stop at one, don't stop at two, make sure that you're at least getting to three. So those individuals feel like, They've got a community, but also individuality. That is so
1: actionable. I love it. Absolutely love it. Because it's, uh, you know, it makes total sense and it's very, very clear and actionable. That's very helpful. That is super, super helpful. Uh, and, you know, especially as someone thinking about organizations and building teams. And, you know, we've tried very hard to make ARTA as diverse as possible.
0: It's it's interesting too, because I think people who are often really... Um, Invested in diversity and they want it. What they tend to do is to look at it and spread the people across the organization. I think that's the other thing I I tend to look at is maybe that's not the right thing for the individuals who are in the more minority group. It might be better to have one team have three people and three other teams to have none. And I know, like in my uh, daughter's college CS program, she even now today. Uh, at Rice University, there, it's still predominantly male. Or she noticed, actually, um, in some underrepresented minority groups, she noticed that the school purposely will create sections where you know one might have three black students and one might have none, because it's not about for everybody else that they get the diversity. It's for those people to feel like they've got a community. And so I think that's that's one thing to think about.
1: Okay, let's let's change tracks a little bit from career. And thank you so much for. Giving us some actionable stuff on diversity to talk a little bit about money. And, uh, you know, I I know you're really into uh, philanthropy, so I want to get into that. But before I get into that, like, how do you think about money? Like, you know, a lot of people, especially those of us who come from tech, you know, have different ways of thinking about money and often don't want to think about it or have a weird historical background and baggage around it. So, how do you think about money?
0: You know, it's this mixture. I think, I did grow up in an environment where my parents did come to the United States with essentially nothing, right? I mean, they the only way they could come to the United States from... They were born in China, grew up in Taiwan, uh, but the only way they could come to the United States for graduate school was just whatever school would give them the most scholarship money. And uh, they had kind of one way... My, my mom came by plane, my dad said that in his family... The girls got to come by plane, and then the boys had to come by boat. So he came by boat from Taiwan. Um, it did not enough to go back, right? This is kind of. They met at graduate school, actually, University of Pennsylvania. Um, so it was just that was their way. So I definitely grew up in an environment where it's like, okay, remember everything you have. You're lucky to have this. We didn't have this, and that that would definitely still. I think I'm I'm pretty frugal in that way, uh, and I I just. So money for me is something where I understand we have enough now and that, that provides the security. But I don't, I'm a mix in that I went to business school. So I kind of understand a lot of the dynamics and I've tried different things myself, by the way. I, uh, here's the magic of it all. I decided one day that I was going to build a bond ladder. So I did this and this is back in, uh, yeah, a very poor time because I built a bond ladder. Where one of the bonds, cause I just picked triple A rated bonds and I was like, I'm going to do all everything I learned in like a finance class and I'm actually going to build my own bond letter. Yet one of them was, um, Lehman. And this is in 2007, the, the financial and one of my rungs on my bond letter all of a sudden one day went to zero. It was a triple A rated bond. And I was like, so. That actually, I, I was like, okay, finally, I'm taking the reins and actually getting involved and in using everything that I learned in business school. And it just turned out very poorly. So that was one thing where I just, I think I didn't really look at the macro environment of what was happening. Um It happened fast though, too, right? Yeah, it was sudden. I mean, the big short, the movie came out later. I missed that story when we were living it. So <laughs> as as I was going to say, there are people
1: who are doing it professionally with teams of hundreds of people who got that wrong. So I don't think you should beat yourself up on
0: that. But it is surprising to one day open up your accounts and be like, oh, that rung is zero now. And so (laughs) my ladder didn't really work. I think after that, I was kind of like, you know what? That took me a bunch of mindshare to actually set all that up and then watch it and things like that. In the end, I just decided I don't think I want to be that involved, even if I've actually done this where I really have my passion is building consumer products. And I think that's where I want to put my mindshare. I did struggle because I had enough background that I was like, "Okay, well, I need, if I'm going to have somebody else manage my money, I need to find somebody who I find who knows more than me, is smarter than me, and that I really, really trust. And that combination ended up kind of hard for me to find. So in the end, actually, my money is managed by my business school roommate. So she is brilliant. I mean, heck, I watched her. She's like a Princeton engineering grad, went to Stanford Business School with me. And she also, you know, founded companies and all of these things. But her lifestyle was, her husband's a law firm partner. They had three children. It was very hard for them, to, for her, to keep starting up companies and and running things. So she actually got a um, financial planning um, license, and she's brilliant. And I trust her. And so that's kind of how I've I've managed for the last I don't know ten years or more. No, that's fantastic. Uh, but I know you
1: you and your husband put a lot of time into um, philanthropy and specific and have a very and have a method around it. Uh, would love for you to talk about it if you are okay with it
0: Yeah you know I talked earlier about our family making this team decision um, where I really love my job my husband I think has always felt like he needs to give back to society and kind of do something uh, for the greater good So one of the things that we looked at as well is we we do make more money than we need and so each year and we this is, we created a family uh, DAF a donor advice fund and each year, we look back at the prior year. So we don't want to kind of put a stress on financials and risk for us going forward. And that's why we try to think about this this way. This is money we've already earned. How much of that are we comfortable then putting into the staff? And that increases and we we decide together what we're going to put in. And one of the things about donor advice funds, I think a lot of people are using them as kind of this tax haven, right? Because it is considered you know, you you get a tax break for putting it in there. And then they're actually just parking it there. So for us, what we do is we give away 100% of that DAF every year. So my husband finds good organizations that he reaches, researches them, things that he feels like he, um, he believes in and they're well run. And he actually gives them money. And he also actually volunteers his time to work with the executive directors. And it can be anything from um, right now he's really involved in free, free guitars for kids, the, uh, positive coaching alliance, kindness.org. Uh, income inequality is also an area that he is really, um, invested in and wants to research. So he's worked in some of those inequality, uh, org, org, things like that. Uh, these are all organizations that he believes in. Uh, NaNoWriMo, you know, writing, helping people write novels. Uh, We donate money and then he works with them to improve the overall uh, strategic plan as well.
1: How did you get into donor advised funds? Like how do you find out about them? How do you set them up? Like, uh, you know, and then uh, you talked about how you allocate money. How did your journey start here?
0: Yeah. So look, my husband is actually much more, he worked at a nonprofit. He's actually helps nonprofits even spin out of like Uh, UC organizations, things like that. So he's very involved in the space and knew a lot about it. Uh, So that's why he wanted to move in this direction. He felt like it was the right thing. He also is incredibly frustrated that people actually start DAFs and then they don't donate the money. And so he's even working with folks to look at legislation that might force people to give it away within three years after putting it in, things like that, or that you know even foundations need to give away a greater percentage of what they put in. Because the problem, I think, when you actually have a situation where people have put it into foundations, donor advised funds, and they don't give it away, um, they get the tax break. They also keep it, I think, because they feel like there's a power to it, because the potential of giving it allows them to have power when they're, you know, and we just don't think that's that's right. Now, as far as getting it started, it's actually quite easy now. When you look at many organizations, I think Fidelity now, a big part of their upside of the profitability of all of Fidelity in their company is actually DAFs because so much money is pouring into it. Now, it's great that they've made it so easy. It's bad that so much of that money is doing exactly what I was saying we don't like it's just being parked there and that's why fidelity's actually gone so much higher in the money that they're uh inve- that they have under management so it's easy to get it started i would just encourage people if you're going to do it really think about why you're doing it. I love the idea of like, you got to give it away. That's what it's there for.
1: I love it. I mean, this is one of the things where, uh, just to be absolutely candid, we hesitated a lot at Arta before starting to explore DAFs, because my impression was a lot of people just park the money there. And then, you know, we had a bunch of internal debates and we're going to open up the ability to create DAFs uh, through Arta too. Again, working in partnership with a bunch of people, but I got around to it was with, because... You know, I felt like if we make it much easier then also to donate to different organizations, then we'll encourage people to do it. And, you know, we shouldn't just avoid it just because some people have used it in the in a way that, you know, we don't like.
0: I'm so happy to see I hear what you're saying you're doing because I was literally gonna make feature request. I'm like, okay, create the DAF, but create this whole atmosphere around it of what you're supposed to do with the DAF and how we can actually make it easy to do the right thing. So yay. Good job. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you. Absolutely. You know, Pooja and I are really big believers in like, you know, we've been extremely fortunate in life and there's actually many people who are doing incredible work where I wish we could support them more with our time. Pooja actually does work in uh, nonprofits and social professionally. Uh, but, um, but even then, like it feels like if, if we can't actually go to work on these causes like children's rights or, you know, like uh, income inequality is very important to us then the least we could do is support them.
0: Yeah, I love hearing that. The fact is, I think nonprofits are in a very tough spot because whenever they, first of all, they're always year to year. They have to ask for money year to year. And then when they ask for money, the people actually want to see that they're running so lean that they don't have any of that money for that working capital. And so that's one of the things my husband tries to help with when he's working with the nonprofits is he'll commit to three-year of you know investment or, or donations because they otherwise the, the nonprofits can't uh, plan ahead at all. They literally every year they have to start over, and so projects and efforts that should have longer term investment are just very very hard to to fund.
1: Sabrina, uh, a few closing questions, just uh, just to wrap things up, and so we'll try to do this as a lightning round. So. Um, You know, and just say whatever comes to your, comes to the top of your mind. So, you know, if you want to prosper, never underestimate the power of. Determination. That's wonderful. The three key ingredients for a long, fulfilling life are.
0: Family. Uh, It's not a word. I would say the uh, happiness, but it's just the decision to be happy, as my son puts it. (laughs) And. Uh, community
1: that's beautiful family the decision to be happy and community i love the way you put it it's because happiness at some level is decision. well that my
0: is. son often will say that and it's you know he'll always be like the you know the first step to being happy is to decide to be happy
1: yeah that's such a wonderful phrase i think i'm going to end this podcast on that Decision to be happy is first just deciding to be happy thank you thank you so much Sabrina.
0: great to see you